Hello, and we are now live. This is the latest episode of Rounds Rant, and I'm honored to say that I'm joined by Kevin Briggs today. Kevin worked as a Californian Highway Patrol officer and was noted for his work in suicide intervention, having dissuaded more than 200 people from jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge into San Francisco Bay. So, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. And there's there's definitely a lot of things I'd like to cover today. But firstly, what I like like to do in the podcast is just talk a bit about your childhood and like what are some of the earliest memories you have when you were, say, a young boy, a young teenager growing up. Hi, Richie. Hey, thank you for having me on the show. You know, I, I grew up here in Marin County in California, which is just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, north of San Francisco. And um, had a great upbringing. I have one brother and two sisters, younger, all younger than me. Uh, my father had a printing business in San Francisco, and he did very, very well for a long time. Um, you know, a, a great child. We went to parochial schools, and you know, everything seemed to be going smooth. We would take our family vacations and go to places. Um, Everything, it was a great childhood. I had a lot of friends and had friends that owned different ranches and farms. And we would hang out there because this is a, a more uh, a rural area than a city area, so to speak. It's a suburb, mm. but there's lots of land around here. And we're fairly close to the wine country and all that. So it's a beautiful area. Um, I had a, a great childhood growing up, really did. And, and that's because of, you know, you're surrounded by friends and family and people that love you. So it, it was good. Now, I, I probably could have studied a little harder in school, mm. but couldn't we all? You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was it was really good. And like as you like kind of get older and you get through, I know it's like high school, then it goes into college with us. It's just known as senior school, then into college. But when you're, say, reaching the point of like 16, 17, 18 years of age, like I know after college you um, – went on to do a few years and served a bit with the army, but like, was there any kind of career path or that you were kind of hoping to do? And then it got changed at any point or was it always say the plan, as I just suggested there to join the army and then kind of just see where that kind of took you? You know, I didn't have a plan. So I wasn't ready for college right out of high school in 1981, two months after I graduated high school, I went into the army so I, I was just 18 years old and spent three years in the military, uh, one in the States, and then I went over to Germany for a year. And then that's where some things kind of took a different course for me. Okay. And just like when when someone that young, 18-year-old, you go join the army there for three years, like how, how does that shape you? Because most 18, 19-year-olds are still in school or are going to college or are doing – I'm not going to say standard things, but like that's generally the path most of them do take. Like, how does going from being in America for a year in the army, then going obviously to Europe to spend time there, like what type of lessons or impacts on your life could you take from that? Because obviously you didn't stay there for the rest of your life in the army, but that must have played a point or an impact in shaping who you actually wanted to become and ultimately what you wanted to do. You know, it's it's about discipline, and I really gained a lot of discipline being in the military. Um, 
it's tough. You know, it is not an easy life, as I'm as I'm sure you're aware. Folks who go in the military, if they spend their entire career in the military, boy, hats off to you because it is difficult, and you're moving around all the time, and it takes a lot of discipline. So that's like the main thing that I got out of that was having that discipline. Do you have to get up early? You have a number of tasks you're going to complete. Um, and this chain of command, always following this chain of command. And it really teaches you how to follow things. And, you know, you learn a lot of life skills and a lot of life lessons. How I was in an area of mainly Caucasian people. But of course, in the military, you're getting everybody from everywhere. So you get exposed to that also, which is really, really cool. You learn a lot of different things about people and how they're growing up. And you meet people from all over the world. So there were some folks that I became very close with in the military from California, but also out in the Midwest and the East Coast. So it's this big salad bowl of, of a whole bunch of different types of people. And like, does that ultimately, when you look back on, say, your time in the Army, you said that you, you learned stuff like the discipline that op- also opened your eyes to whatever different beliefs, different ways of life, different outlooks on life and all that. Like, did you look back on that and kind of said that was that was a positive time that definitely affected me in the right way? Was it a mix? Was it mainly a negative experience? How would you view that, say, in hindsight? In hindsight, it was good for me. Now, at that time in the military, there was still quite a bit of drinking going on and, and, and drugs and this and that. And being in the infantry, um, that had some some portions you know, of that in there. But overall, I met wonderful people, and I wouldn't take it back. It was a very, very good experience for me. And, like, is there any standout experiences from that time? Like, Kevin, is there any – was there ever any maybe close calls? Was there ever any experiences that really kind of had a an impact, whether positive or negative, on you that you kind of revert back to in maybe future situations or whether it was doing jobs or when you were an officer, was there ever an experience there where you've really kind of held on to and just used as either valuable or well, valuable experience later on down the line? Um, there was not a war that, that was going on. So I was very blessed to not to have to go to battle from 1981 through 84, but just going through the different schools. I went through jump school where you jump out of the airplanes, of course, a lot of discipline involved in that because if you screw up, you're only going to mess up once. And that's the end of that. Uh, I went through, I went to Panama, went through jungle warfare school and you realized how difficult it is to go through a jungle and how much you need to push yourself. And you have people surrounded surrounding you that are helping you also they're pushing you i've never been in better shape than when i went through jungle school you think it's all flat and swamps it's not boy it was very very tough but you see that you know you have these huge obstacles ahead of you but you can make it past it if you just keep driving on driving on the only thing limiting you is really your mind i could imagine yeah because as you said you're physically going to be tested and mentally tested every day whether that's training or even um, the real life scenarios themselves, and that that leads you on to: Did you become, say, an officer straight after that? Did you go back to college after the few years with the army? What what was the next step for you there, Kevin? Well, what happened was when I when I was in Germany in 1983, I was diagnosed with cancer, okay. and that threw a big wrench into things: testicular cancer. Uh, and I had my first operation in Frankfurt, 
And then they, and I was only 20 years old. Yeah. And then they shipped me back to San Francisco to Letterman Army Medical Center, where I had two more operations and then uh, several months of chemotherapy. So it was very, very difficult. As of course, cancer is. Um, the operations that actually that cancer had spread up in my abdomen. So I went through these courses of chemotherapy. And luckily, that this type of cancer that I had was... Um, easily hit by the chemotherapy, so to speak. It was easily killed by this chemotherapy. And we know chemotherapy takes a toll on our bodies. Yeah. You lose your hair. You don't want to eat. I'm throwing up all the time. You get depressed. You know, it takes a heavy, heavy toll on your body. But for me and for what I was diagnosed with, with this embroidal cell carcinoma, the drugs that they were giving me really, really worked. So I went down to 135 pounds, but it, but it did knock the hell out of the tumor. So I get done with that around March of 1984. And then I spent uh, some time recuperating, recovering, getting some weight back. And then I worked with my father at his business in San Francisco, his printing business for a while. But I found out uh, I was not meant to be a printer. Yeah. It just it just wasn't me. Great for people who like it. It's nothing, you know, I have nothing to say against it. We need it. Everything's printed on. Exactly. But yeah. it, just, it just wasn't for me. So I applied with the state of California for corrections, and I was accepted. And I started working for the State Department of Corrections uh, at Soledad State Prison down by Monterey for a year. And then I wanted to get back home up here to Marin County. And we have somewhat of a well-known prison here, San Quentin State Prison. Yeah. And I spent two years working there. And, and then one of the guys I was working with was going to try out for the California Highway Patrol. And I said, boy, I don't know. He kept bugging me to do it with them. But I I don't know. They put, they, look, they look pretty squared away. Boy, I don't mm -hmm. know if I could do this. But I went with him. We applied. We went through it. I graduated, and he didn't. So I thank him <laughs> for getting me into it. But that's how I got into the Highway Patrol. Okay, interesting. And I suppose when you started off there, say, working with the in the prison systems, Again, was it purely down to your friend and your colleague there convincing you to try the highway patrol side of things? Or was it a case of, say, with the print and that that element of, say, being an officer in the prison system didn't really suit you? Or did you find that you were actually enjoying it, but then the alternative solution of highway patrol was just maybe something that you're like, okay, I might try it out and see if it works? You know, I enjoyed working in the prison system, and I thank them very much for allowing me and having me and, and providing me with work, but it is a tough job and correctional officers aren't recognized enough, probably worldwide for what they do. It is a very tough job to try to manage. A lot of these folks are unmanageable. You know, it's, it's very, very tough and dangerous. Um, I just didn't have at that point enough faith in myself to see if I could do something else. But once I really tried it and I applied it, I said, no matter what, you know, in, in our academy, in the Highway Patrol Academy, it's a live-in academy, so you have to stay there. But generally, if you don't mess up, you get off and go home on weekends. But I stayed there most of the weekends, and I studied. And this academy was for six months. So I figured I'm going to give this the best shot that I can. And stayed there. We had about 120 cadets when we started. I think we graduated around 80 or so. And I studied and studied and studied, worked my butt off, and I graduated fourth. So I was very humbled and, and blessed 
to be able to go through that. Yeah, no, I can imagine it's um, an all kind of immersive experience when you completely involve yourself in such a thing. And as you were saying there, on weekends you stayed and studied and I'm sure you built up strong relationships with people who worked there, people who worked alongside you because <clears throat> you go through all the highs and lows like everyone else would, whether it's due to work-related, family-related, whatever. But basically it builds up that that trust and that friendship and that ultimately the wanting to do well in the position you're in. And was it very much a case that once you did your time there, became settled in as an officer, like did you always then just go straight into like patrolling highways where you like first and foremost just push near, say, the Golden Gate Bridge? Was it another area? How did it basically all kind of fall into place that you eventually down the road find yourself, you know, becoming that guy who was ultimately talking to people who were thinking of, you know, ending their lives? When I graduated from the Highway Patrol Academy, um, they tell you where you're going to go from the academy. And then based on your seniority, you can get out of there and kind of go where you want within California once you have seniority. But I was assigned to uh, Hayward, California, which many people have heard of Oakland across from San Francisco. I was just south of that. So about 50 miles from Marin County. Now, Marin County is far different than, than where Oakland is. It's just a whole different environment. And I had never hardly been over in that area. Um, A lot of nice people, a lot of wonderful people, but there's a number of gangs and a lot of violence and and shootings and things. So it was a whole different environment that I had never, ever seen before. So I started working there as a road officer, working the beats. And with the highway patrol, we handle what folks refer to as the freeway, but we also handle unincorporated areas. So anywhere where there's towns and things that that do not have a local police department. So we handled that also. So I worked there for um, a good four years before I was able to get back to Marin County, where I'm from, and start working in Marin. And that's when I started working on the Golden Gate Bridge. Okay. So, like, as you were saying there, you're in a unfamiliar territory. And, like, I haven't been to... Haywood, where you mentioned there, I have been to Oakland myself when I was in San Francisco, so I'd know kind of the the layout and stuff like that. But with regards to, say, when you transfer back after your several years, was the Golden Gate Bridge, like I know now, it's it's much more publicized with media and stuff like that, that it was it ultimately became a tool for, and like a venue or a place for people to go and, you know, consider taking their own life or else in some cases, taking their lives. Like, was that very much the sole focus of the bridge at that point? Or was it very much a mix of crime, accidents with vehicles? Or were you going in there thinking, okay, I'm going to mostly be dealing with people who are standing on the edge and I'm going to have to come to terms with that pretty quickly? You know, I had no idea the number of people who came to the bridge who were contemplating suicide. And I lived in Marin. Marin connects to San Francisco via that Golden Gate Bridge. Been over it hundreds of times, if not more. Uh, I had no idea. And I didn't have training in this. So I went in without knowing what I was stepping into. That's for sure. I didn't have training in how to confront someone who was actively suicidal. I didn't know what to say, how to act, what to do. Um, It was very, very strange. So 
it, it was difficult for a while until I wanted to do good. I wanted to work down there to look in someone's eyes who is standing over this four foot pedestrian rail and to look in their eyes and see, man, they, they just can't take it anymore. They're tired of living. They can't see tomorrow, but there's also this, they want to live. I can see it. There's a, a ray of hope in their eyes, but they can't see how, and they're just tired. They, they just can't take it anymore. No, I couldn't. As I said, like I've, I was in San Francisco for five, six, seven days myself and, at one stage, crossed the Golden Gate Bridge, and like it was so misty that day that you couldn't even see the water below. You're that high up. But with regards to that, like when you were dealing with someone quite literally on the edge of taking their own life, and as you said, you hadn't really had the training or exposure. Like, was there anything you were told to do? Was it very much a learn a learning process through trial and error? And obviously, in this. In this particular instance, the stakes are much, much higher than 99% of what other jobs would consist of. Or was it very much a case that you had to do research yourself and find out what was the best way to get through to these people? At that time, way back then in 94 and, and around that range, uh, it was you learned it on the job, which was not the right thing to do, not for this particular set of circumstances. But I, after that one time, and mind you, we just had one officer working on that bridge and around that area. So you didn't have a lot of help. But after that, I would talk to some senior officers and talk to some Golden Gate Bridge personnel to try to get a clue of what to say and what not to say. And I started doing some research. And it was tough back then to find things. Um, but every single time I would talk to someone whether that be in the parking lot, if they were writing a, a note, or anybody that was deemed to be suicidal, I would ask them, you know, what could I do that would have been better? Especially when they're over the rail. What did I say that helped? And what did I say that hurt this situation that, that wasn't so good? So I learned. And I would average four to six cases like this a month. So I did that for, for um, years. And, you know, I learned a tremendous amount, but I know there's a lot of hurt and a lot of pain in this world. And we're still in suicide in America is up uh, like 1.4% or so. Um, murder rate here is down a little bit. The traffic accident fatalities are down, but the suicides are still going up. So we have a lot of work to do. No, no doubt. No doubt. And you kind of mentioned it there a little bit where you had to talk to these people and take note of what worked and what didn't work. And I'm sure now you have an array of knowledge of like, I'm sure in every case it's different, whether the individual based on circumstance, age, gender, like whether they were wealthy or not, there's so many different factors that are coming into it. But looking at the language itself, when it's pretty much you and someone in such a dark kind of, isolated place where they're contemplating something like taking their own life like what did you learn about language and its effect when as you said it's it's quite literally at that last stage that last defense where it's it's a make or break situation where both use the emotion is no doubt very high the the adrenaline's probably pumping but what did you find over the several years of work and in which the language, the English language itself, how did that aid you? And then also how did that sometimes work against you? 
You know, what I really discovered is that for the most part, people want to be heard and they haven't had someone that will just shut their mouth and listen to them and not tell them, well, you know what you should have done? These types of things just really be there for them. And it sounds simple, but that's what many, many folks are looking for. And mind you, I can't, or somebody else talking to someone, I went more for the most part, we can't fix what has been going on, whether that's been something very brief as a, a breakup or something, or something that's been long-term where we're looking at depression for years and maybe homelessness and drug abuse and things, you know, we can't fix that kind of stuff right there or we at all, but we can certainly be there for someone and just listen. And time and time again is what I tell folks. If we just sat down with someone and not tried to give a bunch of advice and tell them what they should be doing, to sit down and listen and verify what they're going through. You know what? Wow. That sounds really tough. Just by being there, it's amazing the difference that you can make in someone's life. No doubt. And I'm I'm sure even say nowadays with the impact and about a, a year or two ago, I got on a an author who wrote a book about say social media and communication compared to say what it is now compared to what it used to be 10, 20 years ago before the social media explosion so much, so to speak, I should say, like, was it a case of there was a lot of similarities where when you spoke to these people, was the, were they always kind of like interlinked with what was causing them to be so unhappy? Or was it, as I maybe suggested earlier, every single case when they started talking back to you, there was something that made you go, okay, I haven't really dealt with this. So that's interesting. Let me try work around it and try help. There was, you know, what I saw a lot of um, with, with most of the people was they suffered from a mental illness, mainly depression, whether that was diagnosed or not. If they were taking a prescription for a mental illness, they stopped it or so a month prior and that's huge. We always hear doctors say, don't, don't stop your medications. But they did. Sometimes they just ran out or they couldn't afford it or some of the you know, effects of the medication was not um, what they were looking for. It does have some adverse effects. So things like that, that those types of stuff that we saw quite a bit. And then also they felt like they were a burden to their families. Saw that quite a bit. But when I would ask them, well, you know, have you spoken to your family about this? They would say, well, no, but that's how I feel and that's how they're making me feel. So they just lost hope. Wow. Okay. Well, like, yeah, it's, as I said, it's not something I'd ever try and relate to. It's not something I would ever personally be like, oh, and like in the small instances where you hear of a friend or someone friends of the family or someone even in the family these days when you hear them speak out saying oh they're going through a tough time or else something maybe something terrible happened within the family it is it's either too late or else when it happens there is that still kind of that element of shock in today's society of just been like oh did you hear that mr x or mrs y was very unhappy and they're they're being diagnosed with depression and what always gets reverted back to most people in situations like that is they just found it so hard to speak out and loads of friends or families tend to get asked. It's And then when they get asked, oh, were they acting strange? They're like, no, they're showing fine. But like one thing that surrounds me, and I don't know if it's the same in 
in your neck of the woods, Kevin, is just like I do find, and I, I'm not going to pinpoint it purely on, say, social media, but the way people communicate now is completely different. The way people spend time with each other is different. And as you pointed out, people don't tend to listen to what other people have to say without, say, interjecting with something or giving their opinion on it rather than just hearing them out and then just being aware of what they've said. So are showcasing what I basically was told is emotional intelligence. So do you think society as a whole right now, and you'd probably be accustomed to it a bit more than I would be, do you think that's being kind of affected by social media in some way, shape, or form, that communication methods are different now and less and less people have the attention spans that they normally had? And as I said, emotional intelligence seems to be dwindling ever so more as each year goes by. You are absolutely correct in in my opinion. Um, things I try to talk to folks about now is where's your front porch? And by this, I mean my mom's side of the family is from a very, very small town way up in Northern California by Mount Shasta, a very small town. And every single home up there had a front porch. And my grandmother would tell me back when we had no, t- no televisions, people would come out in their front porch and that's where they would visit. Well, we're not seeing that anymore. The house that I have doesn't have a front porch. We, you hardly know your neighbors anymore. You're so wrapped up in doing so many hours at work and then you're tired and you get home. We don't even go outside and you're talking about social media. We're on this day and night all the time, but we're always looking down. All you got to do is go to an airport. Where's everybody looking when they're sitting down? They're looking down at an iPad, an iPhone, whatever that may be. So we're not getting this eye-to-eye contact. And I think so much occurs when we're doing this, when we just sit down and chat with someone, whether we're at a coffee shop, And I say that's why women live longer many, many times is because they do get together. They go out for coffee and they chat. And it's not just about what's going wrong or bad in their lives. It's about the good stuff. And they laugh and they smile. So you're exactly right with that, that we need to get back to some eye-to-eye communications. That is so important. So I ask people when I'm saying that, where's your front porch? doesn't need to be a front porch, but where's your front porch where you can have that? communication well that's a good point kevin to be honest with you and just the reason i i brought that up is as i said i had an author who i read the book and was a massive fan and it it made me delete one or two social media sites that i'd been using i still use them but like as i said it made me think about the usage sometimes it'd be on four or five hours a day as opposed to now i'm down to about 70 80 minutes a day which is still not great but it's definitely better than what it used to be but just one thing I'd like to point up, and this only happened recently, was like I spoke about this on the podcast. I would the author called Adam Alter, and we spoke about the fact that like you have different personas now nearly on different social media sites. So I find myself on Twitter being probably the closest version of me of Richie um, as possible on social media, while say the Richie that is showcased to hundreds of people. That's say the one on Instagram, that's not me. And the amount of times I look back at a post or a comment or a story or whatever, I just think I'm like, well, this is, if this was me in front of my friends or my family, I, I wouldn't say this. I wouldn't do this. And I think on a more a wider scale, and especially in the topic we're talking about mental health and the negative sides of having uh, mental health issues, I definitely think society right now it's just that ever craving, just that, that craving to 
be seen, to be heard, to be living your best possible life when at the end of the day, Kevin, and like everyone that listens to this, you and I, there are days where we just go, life life sucks right now. Life's not going too well. It's just about being able to be aware of it and actually realize that, yeah, I'm just not having a good day or I'm not having a good moment. But I just feel now with all that surrounds us, all that we've become aware of, people read newspapers less, people, as you said, go outside, communicate face-to-face differently. With all that, it just creates this concoction where people aren't really, uh, no one's like perfectly made or can deal with their feelings perfectly all the time or what they're thinking about, but it definitely doesn't help when they go through a tough time that they don't really have the required skills or the in-depth thinking to think, why do I feel like this? Can I speak to my friends? Will they understand? Because as I said, a lot of the time when you hear stuff or bad things happen, a lot of the time was, oh, well, I just wish you would have said something to me. Because ultimately, a lot of the times you hear back and you just go, they didn't feel comfortable. And I think those things I've pointed out definitely do play a part. I'm not saying they they lead to it all the time, but they definitely have created an environment now all across the world where especially young people they're being shown fake images, fake lifestyles that they try and match, but ultimately it's just not attainable. And I was just wondering, like, would you would you see that yourself, whether it's close to home, whether it's with people you deal with? Do you see a lot of crossovers with that where it kind of pops up in conversation? And Richie, you're exactly right. You you covered it all perfectly. You know, it's so easy to sit behind a computer and type negativity on, on social media and, and make fun of someone and all that, which you would never do in person. We see this time and time again, um, but it's still, it's, it's those lack of communication skills. And then because we're not being taught that, we're looking at a screen all day long, we're losing a lot of our skills. And then we don't want to look someone in the eye. And we you spoke about not feeling well. Um, I suffer from depression, been on a couple of different meds. I did some therapy, but I suffered from a lot for a long time for this because I did had these ego about me that to suck it up and handle it. And as a man, we don't show a weakness. So I had these macho jobs to where I was in the military, in the infantry. I worked in corrections. I worked at San Quentin. I was on the California Highway Patrol. I rode a motorcycle, all these macho things where we don't show a weakness. And I kept that in and and kept it in and bottled up. But inside I was a mess. And here's what happened with me was I could go to work and I'm great. Everything's fine. But when I was off duty and at home, when I didn't have to really do anything, I didn't. And I could sit on a couch for days. And you talked about sitting at home and not doing anything. That's exactly what I would do. And I've suffered for a long time. I didn't want to go on vacations. I didn't want to go out with friends. I'm thinking, what is going on with me? How could someone go to work and be great and come home and be a big zero? So I finally was tested for it. And there it was. You know, I suffered from depression based on a lot of environmental factors growing up, not through my childhood, but after my childhood with the cancer and a divorce and the heart issues and a number of things. But until I decided, you know what, I, I got to get my act together here. I want a higher quality of life. And I thought, boy, if I come out and say something, I may lose my job. I may lose friends. None of that happened. None of that happened. Your friends are going to say, you know what? I'm glad you said something. I'm glad you're still here. What can I do to support you? And that's the big thing is 
as men, we don't come out and say much. We really don't. We keep it all bottled in. So that's a big one. You know, come out and and tell your doctor, get some help, find out what's going on. If you need meds, go on the meds. If you don't, phenomenal. I hope you don't. But we need to find out what is right with us. Maybe, you know, a lot of times it's just talking to someone can help tremendously. Yeah. Kind of reverting back to what we were just say talking about 10 minutes ago with your your work on the Golden Gate Bridge. And with that, obviously you have your work life, you have your life at home and everything that comes with just life in general. Like, what was that like yourself? Because you must have known every time you wake up that with the nature of your job, you're either going to have a good day, a bad day, you might have an indifferent day. But like, say with yourself, like how how much of a roller coaster was this? Where maybe someday you'd go home and you'd be thinking, "I saved a life today. I I brought someone back and let them restart their own life." But then the flip side of that was that sometimes they didn't come back over the edge and they would have taken their own life. And like, how much of a burden was that on you to basically just pretty much emotionally just invest? everything into the job every day knowing that as i said it could go really really well or it could go not so well like how did you have to develop a a different way of dealing with work when you weren't working did it really come home with you whether it was a good day or bad day like how was this dealt with on your front or even other officers who worked in your line um of kind of work as well when say you didn't have a good day, like how would that, would that linger with you for days? Or was it a case of, I did my best. I'm now going to have to pull all my energy into the next person I can hopefully save. Richie, I'll tell you the ones that I have lost are still there. I still see them. I still see their faces and it's brutal, but I know, and this is when I teach negotiators, to be honest with you, I tell them, I tell them, If you're in this job long enough, you are going to lose people. It's just the way it is. But knowing that, we try our damnedest to do what we do. They make that call of whether they're going to jump or not. When I'm talking specifically about suicide, it's up to them. If they want to come back, I am here for them. I'm here for them however long it takes. And I'm going to do my damnedest to do a good job and and try to get you back over. But I want you to come back over on your own. Because it takes a hell of a lot of courage to do that. And that's also going to give you the courage to keep fighting on day after day. So I talk about this with folks who want to get into this negotiator business because um, many people don't. They don't. We have officers that don't want to work down on the Golden Gate Bridge because of this. They say, nah, that's that's too heavy, man. That's That's too much. But I enjoyed it. Not that I enjoyed the suicidal work of it, but down at the bridge, we get folks coming from around the world each and every day to come and visit that bridge, you know, and, and most folks are there to have a great time. And it was a lot of fun, but it has this dark side to it and that just comes with it. So I wanted to be as proficient as I could. And so I wanted to learn more, learn more, learn more. Um, and finally was able to get some training through crisis intervention training. We call it CIT. And then way towards the end of my career, I went through the FBI's Crisis Negotiator School, which was simply wonderful. But I think whatever craft that you are, whether whether 
you were into building roofs, building homes, you know, things like that, being a doctor, paving streets, whatever it is, just be the best that you can be. It sounds very easy. It sounds kind of ridiculous or whatever. But, you know, for this, it was so important to be the best that I could be. And also to know that if I'm not making a connection with that individual, if I'm not building rapport, maybe I should bring in somebody else. Because the big thing that I teach is we need to leave our egos at home. This is not about us. It's about that individual. Yeah, no, that's a, that's an interesting point about the kind of the ego and the rapport. And I'm sure there were times where you may be built up great rapport with someone and really connected and were able to get to their maybe a level of emotion or whatever it was. And then I'm sure there was times where after how long during the conversation you were like this, this guy or this girl just wants nothing to do with me. Maybe a different voice, a different outlook, a different thought process may help here. And that's ultimately why you're referencing there the fact not to have an ego and like, was there instances? Well, I'm sure there probably were, but just to be sure on it, was there instances where you kind of had to step away and bring in another officer? Or was there times where you were kind of second in command and during the conversation and then another officer kind of looked at you and said, listen, Kevin, I, I'm, I'm out of options here. I think we're going to have to try roll the dice with yourself. Yeah, we've done it both ways where I'm thinking, you know what, it's just not connecting with me, whether that's my tone, whether it's just a male, whether it's my face, whatever that may be. So I will bring in somebody else. Sometimes it's a female. If if we have the people to do that, you know, that's the big thing. Um, and I would. I say, you got to be able to take that step back and let somebody else do it. When I started thinking this is the Kevin Briggs show and I've saved all these people, that's when I'm going to start messing up and people are going to get hurt or killed. So this is not about me. I didn't save anybody. I didn't rush into a burning building and pull them out. I was there on a very, very dark day for these folks. And if I helped and assisted, fantastic. So that's what this is about. I think we need to make it about them. And that's when I tell people who are friends who are see someone suffering. Maybe they're not suicidal. Maybe they're just going through a tough time in their life. But be there for them. I've seen it time and time again. And I have a couple of friends like this. Every time we talk, it's about them. It's what they've accomplished. What are they doing? And they don't even realize it. But a half hour conversation is all about them telling me what they've been doing. It needs to be about other people too. And especially if it turns into where someone is, is really, really stressed or going through a very tough time, whether that's going through cancer or a divorce or something like that, quit making it about us. Make it about them. And how can you be there to support them? Yeah, well said, Kevin. And I suppose just the last thing I'd like to maybe highlight is just say the fact when you would convince someone to come back over the edge and, you know, give life a second go, like with, say, the act of suicide, a lot of people, whether I hear people like yourself talking about it or people who survive it or people who decide against it, they always say, you know, it was, it was never a good idea in the first place. But like when they get into that state of emotion, and then, as you said, sometimes there could be outside factors, there could be drugs, there could be alcohol, there could be, as I said, issues in the family, issues with their wives, anything could be on the table. And it leaves them into such a headspace where 
they're not exactly thinking rationally and it's ultimately leading them to the point where they think the best best decision possible is to take their own life and like I've known a few of my friends who have thankfully spoke out about it and once or twice they may consider doing that I can never say on my my end that I have to be fair once or twice I've maybe thought about it but not ever even considered doing it um as I said some of my friends have and thankfully they had um the trust to speak out about it but say when you had someone who came back over the edge and I've heard people say I wanted to restart my life again I wanted to give it a second chance like what were some of the initial thoughts of that person or if I'm sure in some cases someone would have come back to you months down the line they might have completely changed their outlook on life maybe got a new job started families like what did they always come back to you and say apart from obviously thank you and I'm sure they would have given you a hug and a kiss but like what were some of the main feedbacks or the main things you took from people who decided not to take their life on that particular day Richie I'll tell you the biggest thing that I saw with folks and I want to tell you I, I don't follow up with them after the fact because I don't want to be a trigger sight, sound, smell, anything like that. I want them to get past this day and hopefully even forget it if they can. Mm -hmm. But the biggest thing that I saw with folks is thank you for just listening. Now, why does it have to come down to that? I mean, it's, it's amazing that just by being there, we don't try to fix anything. And more likely we can't. But by being there and just validating what they're going through and say, you know what? Something, if they've been through all sorts of trauma in their life, you know, anybody who's been through what you have may be thinking about suicide. But there's also some joys in life also. And I will tell folks when working up on that bridge, many, many times, the millisecond someone has let go and dropped, and there's very few survivors off the bridge, but um, there's been studies that show when someone has leaped from a building and lived, it wasn't so high up or put a gun to their head and actually tilted it when they shot, that they have stated the millisecond that they pulled that trigger or jumped. They thought, what in the hell did I do? I blew it. I want to live because that's when reality really, really sets in. So I discussed that with them and I thank them for coming back, but I want them to come back on their own. We see these dramatic videos of officers or, or firemen or people running up and tackling folks um, on bridges and buildings and things. Fantastic happy ph phenomenal great but personally i want folks to come back on their own because it takes a hell of a lot of courage to go over that four foot rail to begin with and then you're 220 feet down there's nothing there but to come back and want to live that takes a lot of courage so to come back on your own over that rail that's what starts their new life i think and if they have the courage to do that i think they have the courage to get past some very very dark times but that listening part is so crucial and not to say, well, you know, why didn't you do this? They don't want to hear that. They do not want to hear that. Offer them your support. I'm here for you today. Look, and you didn't know I was going to come into your life. How do you know somebody else is going to be there tomorrow for you? Yeah. Well said, Kevin, to be honest. Well, well said. Well, to finish on a, an up, an up piece. And that was, that's a pretty, pretty sobering story and kind of outlook on it. Um, Kevin, so thank you obviously for sharing that. With most podcasts, I finish with a quick fire question, uh, questions. So about six or seven, 
just quick fire questions and the first thing that comes into your mind feel free to shout it out um some people tend to embarrass themselves in this round but it's the the light-hearted side of podcasting we'll, so we'll see if i even know it yeah. <laughs> i don't know yeah. <laughs> Okay, yeah, some, people, some people some people make them long questions. They have to think about it for a minute or two. I'm like, it's meant to be quick responses, but no pressure on that front. So, to get started, uh, your favorite film of all time? You know, I really enjoyed the movie The Shack. That's one of my favorites, but that one there it came out in 2017. Excellent show. Okay, uh, the best piece of advice you've ever received. Treat others like you would like to be treated. Well said. And name a book you'd love everyone to read. To really get a clue on some history, read read about the world wars so we don't get back into those situations. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, hamburgers or hot dogs? I'm going to go with hamburgers. A particular type of hamburger or just? I'm a good old-fashioned turkey burger kind of guy with just lettuce and tomatoes and, and a wheat bun <laughs> and you're happy then there we go and some ketchup <laughs> <laughs> um your favorite song of all time oh boy i'm a, I'm a big fan of leonard skinnard actual song um multiples out of that but i i enjoy that band yeah well they're good some bangers out of them even a good few irish people um are fully aware of some of their greatest hits and second last question is, what is your biggest pet peeve? Discourtesy. Absolutely. Any examples of where you kind of see that? Oh, where we see it. Sure. Just all you got to do is drive on the highway. And it's there. You know, we might have a the best people. You may go to a bar and sit next to an individual who is nice beyond belief, having a great time. But the minute they get behind the wheel, horns pop out and they got to get ahead of you. They cut you off. I don't know if anybody or any cars these days are even being made with blinkers, but they are on there, people. Yeah. Use your blinkers. And last but not least, sum yourself up in three words. Three words. I would hope people would, would look at me as kind courageous and thoughtful well said kevin normally people take about five minutes doing that so that's a tough one that sounds pretty egotistical too i'm like oh man <laughs> <laughs> no well listen if uh if you think it, you gotta say it so um kevin that more or less wraps it up uh, with the podcast point of view so i just want to firstly thank you for taking time out and then also secondly sharing your experiences um i hope everyone who listens to this looks into your work but more importantly, takes the messages that we discussed today on board. And as you said, we just need to be there to listen sometimes. We just need to put our egos at the door and just sometimes be there for people. So a lot of the stuff you've said has rung true with me, and I'm hoping it does so with the listeners. So I just thank you for taking time out and sharing your life story and your experiences. Well, Richie, thank you very much for having me on the show. I wish you the very best. Um, thank you again. It's been an absolute pleasure. No worries, Kevin. Listen, thanks again. All right, sir.